Welcome to CruxCast. Whether you're in your car, at work, or at home, we hope you enjoy this interview. And if you do, you can find more like it on cruxinvestor.com. So please subscribe. Now, you know we're long-standing advocates for change and innovation in the mining space. And if you're into battery metals and base metals, this story might be for you. We speak today to Jared Barron, who's the CEO of Deep Green. And they are gathering copper, nickel, cobalt, and manganese from the surface of the seabed. If you want our thoughts and opinions on the conversation, their strategy, and the company itself, you can find that at cruxinvestor.com forward slash club. We can also find detailed company reports. There's commentary from market experts from around the world on a variety of commodities and companies. There are training videos. There are summaries of other interviews that we've done just to save you a little bit of time. And of course, there are a thriving community of investors sharing their thoughts and ideas with each other. So do go and join them at cruxinvestor.com forward slash club. Gentlemen, hello, how are you? Hey, thank you. Very well, well thank you. Very good. Uh, absolutely wonderful. Absolutely wonderful. Um, we are looking very much forward to Christmas with the family, but we've got a little bit of work to do before then. Uh, not least of all, talking to interesting companies like yourself. So how are you, Gerard? Nice to see you again. Yeah, nice to be back. I'm in. Uh, I'm out of my student digs, or my daughters at least, <laughs> you know, back into a more comfortable environment. Fabulous. Okay, and you brought they they are they are that that it's a little it's an up uptick from the student days we spoke to you at last time. Thank you. And you brought with us uh, brought with yourself today, Anthony O'Sullivan. How are you, Anthony? Hi, Matthew. How how are you doing? Not bad. Not bad. It's a pleasure to um to to talk to everyone here from from um, Brisbane, Australia, where we manage a, a lot of the the project elements um, for Deep Green. Um, my background is I, I'm a geologist by training. I worked with BHP for, for 15 years, the last five of which I was with, um, with, with their exploration leadership team responsible for iron ore, coal, bauxite and base metal exploration globally. Um, I spent a fair bit of time looking for these, these resources, discovered that it's very, very difficult to find them and I'm so excited that the largest deposit of undeveloped nickel, copper, cobalt, and manganese sits in a, a very large resource that's very accessible to us um, in, in the middle of the Pacific Ocean. Brilliant. Okay, well, we're going to talk, talk about that in a second. Um, but before we do, I'm going to ask Jared if, to start off as we always do. Just give us a one-minute overview of what you're trying to do, and then we can pick it up from there. Yeah, so I guess at a macro level, what we're trying to do is to identify where can we secure uh, the virgin metals that we need to enable this transition away from fossil fuels. And we all know that we're going to need uh, a massive injection of, of nickel and cobalt and copper and manganese into the system. And so Deep Green is focused on opening up uh, polymetallic nodules. I hold one in my hand. And they, uh, they lay on the bottom of the ocean floor. They, they were discovered way back in the 1870s by British explorers in a program funded by the Royal Society. And that there's one area of interest. Uh, and the reason why it's an area of interest is because these nodules are found in a variety of locations, but they often are not worth picking up because they're full of iron hydroxides and manganese. But in this one area known as the CCZ, the Clarion Clipperton Zone, they contain lots of nickel and copper and cobalt. And that's because they form through a very slow precipitation process. So they, they suck all of the metals that are in the ocean water and the sediment upon which they sit. And of course, if we, if we go back many millions of years, the Rockies and Andes were once covered in nickel and copper. And so as all of those metal tops eroded into the Pacific Ocean, they settled in this fracture zone now known as the CCZ. Yeah, so we're, we're going through the process of uh, figuring out uh, the best way to be able to uh, collect these with the lowest impacts and turn them into metals. Fantastic. Okay, so last time you were on, we had people who were fascinated and alarmed in equal measure because they wanted to understand what it was that you're trying to do. And the kind of questions that were sent in was like, can they go and mine or harvest these nodules 4,000 meters under the sea uh, economically and also ecologically? 
you know, are they what damage are they going to cause? So I think we're going to try and answer those questions today. So um, can you give us a talk, talk to us about the CCZ and you know why you are allowed to go and um, look at or attempt to harvest these uh, modules because it's been a long time in the making. <laughs> yes, it has been a long time in the making. Um, I mean, this one I hold in my hand would be uh, some millions of years old, and so. These have been a long time in the making as well, of course. And but, but it's an area that's regulated um, by a body known as the International Seabed Authority. And if you cast your mind back to the 1970s, this industry almost got started. Um, there were four different consortia involving names like uh, Kennecott and Mitsubishi and Lockheed Martin and Shell and BP. And they, they decided that this resource was one that they wanted to start collecting. But the thing they hadn't taken into account was title. And so, because back in the 1970s, the world or the countries of the world had not agreed who owned the oceans. And we're about a thousand miles off the coast of Mexico. And so, in fact, it was in uh, the, the mid seventies that Henry Kissinger wrote to all of the ambassadors of the United Nations and said, uh, hey, we'd like to lay claim to this part of the Pacific Ocean. All the ambassadors got together and said, mm, that doesn't sound too equitable. No, you can't. And so everyone had to pack up their, uh, their kit and go home. And it wasn't until 1982 when UNCLOS was agreed, the United Nations Convention of the Law of the Sea. And I know most people will be familiar with UNCLOS, but it basically says as a sovereign, you own everything within 12 miles of your coastline. You have an economic right to everything within 200 miles. But beyond that, it's owned by everyone. It's the common heritage of mankind. And the International Seabed Authority was established in 1994 with the express purpose of putting in place a regulatory environment to allow the development of this industry. And here we are 26 years later, and we're almost there. And I say almost because in 2020, we were hoping that the final code that allows us to uh, move from exploration to extraction and sale would fall into place. Um, the first edition of the code came out in 2017. The fourth edition was published in 2019. Uh, and it was expected that this year the code would drop. But due to COVID, it's been delayed a little bit. So we expect it will fall into place. It's in good shape. The standards and guidelines, uh, the first draft were published a few months ago. There'll be an updated uh, set of guidelines out before Christmas. And yeah, I think we're, we're getting close to the, uh, to the starting line here. I mean, at the moment, it feels like we are in the ocean science business though, Matthew, that's because that's what we uh, are spending all our time and energy on, you know, fully understanding uh, the impacts of collecting these and how we can best mitigate those impacts. Which is important. Um, but th th thank you for explaining sort of the, the macro environment in which you're operating here. Um, and, and we do want, do want to get into the science. I do want to get in the economics of it. But first of all, um, can you explain how much time have you spent on this? How much money has been invested? Who are your partners? What gives you kind of the right to say to people, we will be able to deliver this? Yes. Well, when UNCLOS was uh, drafted, they were very clever because this being an asset that's available to, it's a common heritage of mankind. And so they were very keen that developing countries would be able to participate as well. Because of course, normally it's the wealthy nations that, that drive the extraction of resources. And so there was a provision in UNCLOS that allowed a developing country to sponsor a private company applying for an area. And so we uh, formed a, a sponsorship agreement with Nauru in 2011, with Tonga in 2012, and with Kiribati in 2015. So, so Deep Green controls three license areas in the CCZ. And what those agreements provide, we hold the agreement with the regulator and then we have a sponsorship agreement with the developing country. And, and for those countries, uh, it's a wonderful opportunity because they are not abundant in natural resources themselves. And in fact, 
Kiribati and Nauru did have phosphate deposits, but of course they were mined out um, by the British and Australians and, and the developing world back in the 1960s and 70s. And coincidentally, when they were exhausted, they were offered independence. So they were left with a bit of a mess to clean up. But it, but it is one of the important aspects about this project that we have uh, clear title over our areas because of our, our exploration agreements with the International Seabed Authority, Seabed Authority. But it means as we progress the project that the benefits will be shared with developing countries and they'll be shared in the form of royalties. We will pay royalties to our developing country and to the regulator. UNCLOS was very clear that those royalties should then be distributed to developing countries. But it's more than that. It's about jobs. It's about an industry. It's about the opportunity to participate because the irony is, of course, that those developing countries have contributed least to climate change, yet they're in the front line of the First Nations to be impacted by climate change in particular through rising sea levels. And so, you know, whilst, you know, sitting back in their uh, developing country, that they've not been contributing to the problems yet, all of a sudden, you know, they're, they're having to address how to, how, how to handle the impacts of rising sea levels and the potential need to, um, uh, to rehabilitate their people. And so, yeah, it's a, it's a nice feature about UNCLOS. And, and from our perspective, our partnership with those developing countries um, that now date back almost a decade is a very vital part. And we, we consider them true partners in what we're doing. Okay, but the bit I'm trying to get at, Gerard, is, you know, why would investors be interested in this story? It sounds, you know, very green and you're very careful with your language and you've, you're, you're talking... You're kind of tippy-toeing your way th through this kind of uh, ecological um, danger zone because people are like, well, you know, this could this could create untold uh, damage to our seabeds, to our marine life. Um, and you're ha you're having to be very very careful here. But why why would investors be interested in this? This this sounds like it, it could be you know just soak up a lot of a lot of capital, a lot of money. Well, if I may, I'll answer that in two parts. Uh, and first on the environmental front. So, you know, and imagine now, Matthew, if, if, if we went and announced to the world that we discovered this entirely new type of resource, you know, and a resource where we, we didn't have to go in and rip down forests and didn't have to take away the topsoil, we didn't have to drill and blast to get to it, but we just stumbled across this massive resource of, of these, of these rocks lying around. And that's kind of what we have. And, and, and it's even better than that. Um, these have formed in, in the abyssal zone. And the abyssal zone is 4,000 plus meters below sea level. And it's an area of limited life. And if we measure that life in biomass, and, and, of course, biomass is not the only indicator, but it's a good one to compare one thing against another. But the average biomass that we're dealing with is around 13 grams per square meter. And that covers the seafloor and everything above it, 13 grams. Now, if we then compare that to where we're getting our nickel and where future nickel production may come from, Indonesia, where the average biomass exceeds 20 kilograms per square meter, and so, you know, people can easily jump to a conclusion because mining has a bad rap, right? Let's face it, you know, and, and the thought of mining the oceans because is a horrible thought. And, and I don't blame people for going shock horror because you assume that what you've seen on land will happen in the oceans. But we're focused only on these nodules. And there are other deposits in the oceans known as sulfides and seafloor crusts. And I think they will offer a more invasive uh, approach to mining. You'll have to go down there and dig up hard rock, turn big rocks into smaller rocks, and then pump them to the surface. Whereas what we have to do is we have to collect these nodules. And of course, you know, having limited biomass is a great place to start. And then there are many 
offset opportunities. And by offset, I mean we can um, engineer our systems to make sure that we limit any potential impacts that we're making. For example, we have fabulous partners um, already in our projects, mainly from the oil and gas services sector, because if you think about what's happening in the world, we're, we're, we're transitioning away from fossil fuels. And that means there's less investment going into fossil fuels, thank goodness. And But those companies that have serviced that industry for the last decades are now wondering, what the hell am I going to do in the future? I've got all this expertise. I've got all of these assets. And they make perfect partners for us. And so we're, we're, we've been designing our harvesting system using some amazing cool technology and, and engineering practices like the colander effect that allows us to lift these nodules with minimal impact on the surround. So, so it means that we'll only impact the top five centimeters of the ocean floor. And, you know, people say, yeah, okay, so you can do that. But what about all the dust? Because think of it as driving a car down a dirt road. You know, there'll be dust that's created, of course. But the one thing that happens in the abyssal zone is because of the high pressure environment that the particles tend to flocculate together. And so the dust settles very quickly. So it's like, okay, well, that's getting interesting. And then what else do we need to look at? Biodiversity. Well, there's been a lot of studies and, and people often say, uh, look, we don't know enough about the ocean. We know more about the moon. Can I just say that's wrong? We know a lot about the CCZ. There have been more than 6,000 science days of, of research studying this area. And, and there have been many uh, research papers and, and studies by groups like Discal that published a report last year uh, for a study where they, off the coast of Peru, they had gone and disturbed the seafloor. In fact, they dragged a plow through the ocean floor <clears throat> because they wanted to see how quickly the environment would recover. And what they found when they returned uh, several times, but they published a paper last year, after 26 years, biodiversity had returned fully. So full recovery, biodiversity, and population numbers had returned to 50%. Now, if you heard those numbers, you could, you could look at it glass half full or glass half empty. You could say, oh, my God, after 26 years, it hadn't fully recovered. On the other hand, you could say 26 years, when we think of the planet being four plus billion years old, in 26 years, we've had full biodiversity recovery. I mean, that's phenomenal. And of course, this is one of our challenges that <clears throat> we're not suggesting that there are no impacts, of course. I mean, there are impacts in most things we do on this planet. But what we can do is better understand those impacts, mitigate them as best we can, and then we have to compare the known impacts with current practices of land-based mining. And, you know, I think the signs are very, very encouraging with regards to the environmental lightness. And, and you know, if you go to our website, you'll also see um, journals that have been recently published, including in the Journal of Cleaner Production that, that published a paper, obviously all peer-reviewed, that focused on the CO2 impact and confirming that we can build a, an electric vehicle battery and generate more than 90% less CO2 using these ocean rocks compared to land-based resource. So, so that's a very long answer to the first part of your question around the environmental aspects. And then, you know, where's the money going to come from? Well, thankfully, um, you know, this is a new frontier. There's no doubt about it. And so it's not for everyone. <clears throat> but we're thankful that the offshore oil and gas services industry is made up of some very large, talented companies who've been attracted to this industry. And we have two of them on our register. One is Allseas, who are the largest layers of pipe for the oil in the deep ocean for the oil and gas industry. Very engineering-led company, have more than 600 engineers in their team, the best of which are now working on this project. And the other is Maersk, who've been a shareholder for more than four years now. And we know them as the world's largest shipping company, but they are also very active in the offshore services space as well. So those are companies who are going deep ocean, no problem. We know that environment very well. We've been working in it for 40 years. 
And so that's why our register and our early supporters have come from that industry as opposed to the terrestrial mining industry because, you know, this is a, a step too far for many of those. But as we, you know, from our perspective, you know, what we're doing is just moving our way through feasibility. You know, by January next year, we will have completed our pilot processing work. We've been working very closely with Hatch on that work. And the results are fantastic. I mean, we can turn these rocks into metals and generate no tailings and no waste stream. I mean, this is, a, this is something that you just cannot find in a terrestrial deposit. It's very, very different. It's challenging. If you're a terrestrial miner who's having to deal with tailings dams and maintain them forever, and all the waste streams that come out of it, the idea of a resource where there's no tailings, where there's no waste material is, is just unheard of. But it's a fabulous thing for us to be dealing with. Um, same with our pilot harvesting system. You know, we'll have our pilot harvesting system in the water next year in the Atlantic and on the CCZ for a full end-to-end -end system uh, demonstration in early first half of 2022. So, you know, for us, it's, it's, a, it's a complex project, don't get me wrong. Um, but it's a complex project that is being managed by, you know, a very talented team of people. And, you know, the, the benefits are becoming very clear for us all to see. And, and I hope society will look at this uh, when they start to better understand, you know, how we can compress those impacts when we're making metals compared to the alternative. Okay, thanks for that. And I, you, you've um, kindly offered to run through um, a, a few pages on the PowerPoint, but I just want to check with Anthony, if I if I may. Anthony, you, you've been hunting base metals around the world for BHP and the like. Um, is it as simple as picking pebbles off the ocean floor? No, not at all. If you look at one of the, the biggest challenges facing the mining industry for battery metals and, and all, all types of metals has been in, in the last 25 to 30 years, um, exploration discovery has fallen off, off a cliff. We, we've not been discovering the resources that we, we discovered previously, which means that as an industry, the, the metals industry is one of the few industries that actually gets worse every year, not because the people involved in it. There's, a, there's a, some very clever people using a lot of art and a, and, a, and a lot of skill to try and improve outcomes every year, but the place that they start, quality of the resource is getting worse every year because they, they took all of the good stuff to begin with. And as you, as deposits get deeper and lower grade, they, they get more, more difficult to, to develop and they get more expensive to develop. And more importantly, they have a much bigger environmental footprint. So that there's no deposit on the planet that comes close to the scale in terms of nickel resource that the clarion Clipperton zone. So the entire zone, that we were talking about has a, has a nickel resource of about 270 million tonnes. So to put that into context, last year the world used 2.3 million tonnes of nickel. So that's 100 years of nickel production at today's production rates. Cobalt, um, there's, there's 46 um, million tonnes of cobalt in the, in the CCZ. Last year we used 120 kilotonnes of cobalt, something of the order of 400 years of supply. So this is an enormous resource that, that's of the scale of the challenge that we've got if we're looking to electrify a, a billion vehicles by, say, 2050, which is, which is the, 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 the scale of forecast that various, various groups have put forward. You'd need about 25% of the clarion Clipperton zone to electrify the entire light vehicle fleet. Okay, so where are you getting those numbers from? First of all, question number one. And two, is it going to be economic? Can it be economic? Okay, so those, those, numbers, those numbers are actually published by, by a number, number of people who've, who've um, consolidated the various data sets that are available for the CCZ. And as Jared said, there's been a lot of work um, evaluating that work. The, 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 the CCZ, a lot of sampling, uh, a lot of surveying. And one of the things about these nodules is that they are very, very consistent in their, their particularly in their chemistry. To understand the uh, resource for nodules on the deep ocean, you really need to know two things. 
you need to know the composition of the nodules and you then also need to know the abundance of the nodules on the seafloor. We've done significant amount of work within the, the Nori area that we've focused our initial efforts on. And, and we, we can demonstrate that, that, that taking a samples um, 10 to seven kilometers apart is sufficient to estimate with to, to measured status, the chemistry of nodules. Taking samples of the order of three kilometers apart is sufficient to, to get the abundance at measured status. So, so by taking samples, 10 kilometres apart, and then taking photographs of the seafloor, because you can evaluate the abundance of the nodules from photographs. You don't actually have to take a sample. You can take a picture. You, you can get a, a very accurate level of, of resource evaluation. And, and to date, we, we've just completed a, a program this year where we've, we've uh, upgraded 341 million tonnes of the Nori resource from inferred to indicated and in that process, we ended up with 6% more abundance and 6% more nickel grade than when we started with. And for that, that's, that's very unusual in my experience, having seen many resource evaluation processes, it's quite often that when you, when you move from inferred through indicated to measured, you, you, you may be lucky to, to, to end up with 30% of what you started with. Here, we, here we've ended up with, with just a little bit more than, than what we started with, which is outstanding. Okay. And in your experience, like I say, I'm harking back to BHP days, chasing base metals around the world. Is this a project which has got obvious red flags to you in terms of its ability to move forward? Because, you know, Jared's referred to um, papers being reviewed by peers and lots of analysis, and there's a lot of known <clears throat> information about CCZ. Um, I mean, are we going to be mining this? Do you think we are going to be mining this within your lifetime? I, I'm, I'm sure of it. Um, you, you look at, if you take it from the technology uh, viewpoint, um, the technology was demonstrated in the 1970s. Um, there, were, there were four major consortia of a combination of mine, mining companies, oil, oil and gas and large in, industrial companies, which demonstrate that you could find these things, that you could evaluate them, you could bring them to the surface and you could turn them into metals. That was done in the, in the 70s and for many of the reasons that, that Jared's highlighted previously, um, that didn't come to pass for, for, um, for permitting and, and governance reasons and, and, and the lack of a regulator, which is, which is now in place and, and coming to the point where, where there will be a regime under which to, to undertake production. Um, the key focus of our activities at the moment is to take the technical demonstration, which has been done, and, and then look to show that we can do it day in, day out, and we can do it continuously at a scale um, that, that's economic. Uh, we, we've engaged groups, uh, as we've said, our, our partners, but also engineering firms um, who were involved, or the principles of which were involved in, in the work done in the 70s and then also collecting the, the 40 years of development from the oil and gas industry, which has happened since the 70s. And, and there are some keystone technologies which they didn't have available in the 70s. Things like GPS didn't exist. So they had to come up with some, some very clever ways of, of locating themselves in the ocean, which today we just put a GPS transceiver on a boat and we know how to do that. Um, they're, they're, and there's a, there's a whole myriad of, of riser development and, and, and pumps and, and those sorts of things which have happened in the 40 years since this was demonstrated in the 70s. So, so te technologically, the, the technologies that we're using are all step outs from existing technologies. We're, we're, not, we're not inventing anything. We're, we're integrating existing technologies to, to produce, the, the, to, to, to come up with the production system that we'll use. And then, then onshore, we've taken existing technologies um, and tweaked them with some skill and some art and some challenge to, to the, the likes of Hatch to ensure that we can produce these metals with, with no um, solid waste streams, which we find astounding. Okay, Jared. So the XBHP guy thinks this has got the scale. You've got the technology today. Uh, to be able to mine this. You're telling us you've got the regulatory environment, you've got the scientific papers uh, and studies which have done some 6,000 plus. 
Um, sounds like nothing can go wrong. <laughs> well, there is, I get asked most days uh, from <laughs> investors, whether existing or potential ones, what keeps you up at night, Jared? And, and there's only one thing that's ever kept me up at night about this, and that is uh, financing it, you know, making sure that we keep the investment up to the task. And so I think there are challenges. I mean, we have a, a small but very talented team from BHP, Rio Tinto, the offshore oil and gas industry, McKinsey. We've got a really talented small team of people. And they are great at managing risk. We have risk registers figure predominantly in a, or prominently in our, our company. But there's only one risk that I think uh, keeps me, well, I know that keeps me awake. And that risk is now diminishing as well. You know, I can see the crest of the hill and that's been keeping the investment up. Because of course, every dollar that we spend is about making sure we prove up the proof points that are necessary. And I think the main one has been around environment. And, you know, when I took over um, leadership of this company, I knew that it was about social license. You know, the economics around this project are phenomenal. The size of the resource, as you've heard from Tony, uh, is phenomenal. I knew that the, the deciding factor was going to be what, you know, letting people come on the journey and let them have visibility to see how much lower the impacts are uh, and to for us to operate in a very transparent, open way. And, you know, that's what we're doing. I mean, we've, our boat is on, it's just returning to San Diego now, actually. It's been out on the water for six weeks. It has 56 people aboard, many of them scientists. It's on a baseline science program. Uh, they, that's our eighth expedition now, three of which have happened this year during COVID year. And kudos to Tony and his team that we've been able to keep, you know, our productivity uh, moving along, you know, on schedule, something that a lot of development projects have not been able to do this year. And so, you know, I, I think that funding issue that has always concerned me has started to dissipate. And, and in February this year, we, along with our partner, All Seas, announced the acquisition of our first production vessel. And that was a, a vessel that was previously a drill ship, a Samsung 10,000. It was a $700 million asset um, eight, nine years ago. Now we were able to acquire it. Uh, well, our partner, All Seas, acquired it, but with our help, um, for cents in the dollar, because it was going to either go to the, the scrap heap to be recycled or can be repurposed into a new industry like ours. It had the right power, it had a moon pool, it had a riser, it had great storage. You know, it was a, it was a good production vessel and we'll be using that asset for our pilot mining test and it will then segue straight into production. And that's, a, that's something that we've worked really hard at because when we talk to customers, you know, they like, this is good, this is good, but what can we do to make you go faster, to help you go faster? Because, you know, if you talk to someone who's making batteries, then they know the dilemma. And I think for a while people thought maybe battery chemistry will move away from nickel intensity, but it hasn't. It's gone the other way. It's moved away from cobalt use, and that's been led by Tesla and others, but everyone's doubling down on nickel. And so if you're making batteries and you're dependent on nickel, then you're feeling a bit anxious at the moment. As Tony said, 2.3, 2.4 million tons last year. Tesla have announced they want to be making a terawatt of battery by 2030. And what are they, 20% of the market by then? So that means that the nickel market might grow, you know, four to five million tons a year. Where's it going to come from, Matthew? You know, and so one of the things that we've been very focused on is how can we move um, from permitting in, into production, you know, in the most efficient manner? And being able to have partners like the ones we have, uh, I think we have a pretty good strategy, but also being able to buy some of these assets that are no longer of value to the offshore oil and gas industry means that we can be in business pretty quickly. And, um, you know, our target is to be is to be collecting nodules and turning them into metals in, in 2024, which is not far away. 
so Matthew, if I may, um, I have a few slides here that, that um, your audience might appreciate. So you asked before about um, resource and about economics. And Tony uh, talked about what we have. So, so deep green, we have three license areas. And uh, if you can see up on this map, so this is the area known as the clarion Clipperton zone. And the oceans are about 361 million square kilometers in size. So they're pretty big. And the, <clears throat> the areas under license total 1.1 million square kilometers. So 0.3 of 1% of the ocean is currently under exploration licenses, no extraction, just under exploration licenses. And it's all in this area known as the clarion Clipperton zone. And on two of our blocks, um, and, and the deep green areas are the colored ones, the, the white areas are other license holders. And the other license holders include the sovereigns of Japan, Korea, uh, Singapore have a license, partnering with Keppel, the shipping company. <laughs> Uh, the United Kingdom have a license. They partner with Lockheed Martin, France, Germany, Russia. So, and China, of course. China have two license areas up here. But we're the only company that has defined the resource. So we now have 1.6 billion tons of defined resource. Um, and as, as Tony said, we've moved some of that resource from inferred to indicated and measured already. And you can see the grade of the material, um, it's very high. So we're talking 1.3% nickel, 1.1% of copper and 0.2% of cobalt and about 30% manganese. So, so it's very, very large. It's enough to make around 255 million, uh, 75 kilowatt EV batteries. But if I may, I'll just take you on to um, uh, the cost curve because I, I, you mentioned before is an economic. So, <clears throat> It's polymetallic deposit. It's, a, it's like having three tier one assets all in one. And on the cost curve, we come out pretty well. You can see Norilsk is a lot cheaper, but um, we'll never go near them. There's their, their platinum palladium deposit as much as a nickel deposit. But the thing about Norilsk is it pretty hard to expand, right? Almost impossible. Whereas we have expansion available to us. And this is a cost curve based on our Nori D area. Okay, so um, so, so our plan is to, to expand that width quite significantly. But because of the, because of the polymetallic nature, it, it, what this chart shows is that the byproducts of our copper, cobalt and manganese generates much more revenue than our total cost of operation. But if I may, I'll take you back because I, you, you've heard that the environmental aspects are, are pretty, you know, important to us, and um, and will and and also the geopolitical aspects as well. If if you allow me, I'll just give a quick run through because you know we've seen this chart shows the top three producing nations for oil and gas on the left, but also for battery materials. So you see, there's an even greater concentration when it comes to battery materials than there was for oil and gas. And, you know, will there be wars fought over metals? Too right, there will be. And so if we look at America and China, um, and this, the blue dots are America, and you can see they're nowhere when it comes to battery materials. And 2020 has, I guess, shown the fragility of supply chains and lots of nations are now saying, how can we, how can we become more independent? How can we source our own materials instead of being so heavily dependent on China and, and kudos to China, right? They, they're in that position because they foresaw a trend and they got ahead of it. Um, so we've spent a lot of effort around understanding the impacts of making uh, battery metals and um, from an ESG perspective. And we published a white paper, it was independently authored, but we funded it on Earth Day this year which looked at the ESG impacts if we make a billion batteries using terrestrial metals compared to ocean metals. And so we know in these four metals, um, nickel, copper, cobalt, and manganese, there's around 155 kilograms in every car. And it, to mine them on land, we need to use the space of about 10 car parking spots. 
But importantly, we destroy around 560 kilograms of life, of biomass, because they come from these areas like in Indonesia, the nickel laterites, lots of biomass. And, and, and to fully understand what LCA, you know, the impacts, you have to look at all of the sequestered carbon. And, you know, the, the, this is something that gets overlooked quite often, that obviously, you know, our carbon sinks have been very effective sequesters of carbon, but if we're going to dig them up and kill everything in that ecosystem, then we're going to unleash a lot of carbon. And, and the fact that we've dug it up and it's become dead zone means that it can't sequester carbon in the future. And so it's only when you go into the full LCA, and this is the impact of one, only one car battery. And as we know, the, the, these metals are coming from very biodiverse areas and we're still littered with the problems of child labor. To make that one battery, we will um, need to, to dig up and touch around 64 tons of material. And that includes the overburden and it includes the, uh, the, the, the ore bearing rock. And as you heard from Tony, the, the land-based ores are declining year on year because the good stuff's all gone. So it's a lot of material we need to touch just to make that one battery. And of course, we stack all those waste materials in these piles. Sometimes they get spilt into rivers. Uh, there are tailings, of course, that we need to generate uh, to get out those deleterious elements. We stack them and sometimes it doesn't work so well as we've seen in Brazil in recent years. And even worse, there are many applications in Indonesia where the tailings will be put straight into the deep ocean. And that's because of where Indonesia sits on the tectonic plate. So, you know, this is a challenge. And so just to make that one EV battery will generate 13,000 kilograms of CO2 emissions, 13 tons of CO2, and generates 64 tons of waste material, use 45,000 liters of water and 58 tons of toxic material. Now, as our white paper showed, you know, to make a billion EVs, we're talking about 13 gigatons of CO2 emissions. And if, if we're a chance of keeping global warming to 1.5 degrees C, we've only got a budget of 222 gigatons and we're going to use 13 of it just to make these batteries. So, you know, our focus was where do we get these metals from without that massive ESG imprint? And, and I, I touched on this before, but, but please allow me, just imagine if we said we'd come up with this um, or took a step back and thought about the planet as a whole, not thought about land and ocean, but if we found this new type of resource that didn't have plants and forests growing over it, we didn't have to remove all the topsoil and we didn't have to drill or blast to get to it, but instead we just had all these exposed rocks sitting on the surface and that's what we have. And they have all the metals we need to build the batteries. And you'll see 32% is made up of those metals, but the rest is made up of iron hydroxides, of silica, but no waste material. And importantly, none of those nasty deleterious elements that means you generate lots of tailings or waste streams. And so to build that one battery, instead of touching 64 tons of material, we'll only have to touch six tons of nodules. And, and we can compress those impacts by more than 90% savings in CO2 we'll generate no waste, we'll only use 10% as much water, and we'll generate no tailings. And all of these numbers are supported through our papers, both the white paper and the paper that was recently published in the Journal of Cleaner Production. So, um, and the other benefit uh, that, that you know, must not be overlooked is that we don't need to build fixed infrastructure. So with terrestrial deposits, they tend to be in remote places where generally you have to build roads and rail and power and deep water ports and villages for people to live. Whereas, you know, we're repurposing assets or we'll build new assets and float them on out there. So we don't have those infrastructure barriers. And then of course, as we collect, we can put them on a, a ship that sails north, south, east or west. So that's another restraining factor that we don't have to deal with. So, um, yeah, so, so that's, kind of the, I, I guess, the biomass story. I should, I'd be remiss not to talk about that. I, I said before, 13 grams per square meter on the CCZ compared to more than 20 kilograms 
in the rainforests in Indonesia where we're getting our nickel, the average biomass on land is 3.64. And of that 13 grams, more than 70% of it is bacteria living in the sediment, which we won't kill. You know, we will mess it up, give it a bit of a ride, but it will survive us passing through. And, and most of the organisms that we're studying are neofauna living in the sediment. You do see sea cucumbers, you do see the odd starfish, but it's mainly uh, neofauna. And, and of course, we will impact it as our harvesters, as our robots move through. And that's part of what our environmental studies are focused on. Okay, nodule removal. What, what, what role do these nodules play? How can we mitigate that? And we do that by firstly, the regulator who puts aside big areas of uh, no-take zones, uh, or the regulator puts aside these preserved areas. And, and I mentioned before that there's 1.1 million square kilometers under license. And the regulators already put aside 1.44 million square kilometers into these protected areas. And, and secondly, we will not collect all of the rocks ourselves. We'll only collect at about 85% efficiency. And then what about the sediment? Uh, think of it as driving down a dusty road. Well, you know, what will be the impact? How far will the sediment travel? What we found, uh, and this is a study being undertaken by many, uh, including MIT, who've been working on it for three years now, uh, a study that, that's currently in peer review, is that the sediment particles flocculate together and they settle quickly. And so that's good news. It means they won't travel far. And then finally, we, we test, well, where's the return water going to go? Um, because what we do is we separate the sediment on the seafloor and then we put the nodules into a riser so it moves up the riser pipe in a mixture with water and we have to return that water somewhere. But the answer to that will be in the science. Through our science studies, we'll determine whether it gets returned at 1,000 metres, at 2,000 or at 3,000. So those, those answers are coming about as a result of a very large ocean science research program. Uh, we'll spend about $75 million on it in total, involving some of the leading institutions around the world. Um, as I mentioned, our boat is motoring back to San Diego now with many scientists aboard. Uh, they've been carrying out many baseline studies. And so, yeah, that's kind of where, we, uh, where we've got to. And I, I guess in the last decade, these are some of the challenges that we've been having to find answers to, you know, how to, how to define the resource, how to acquire it, how to then convert it into a license to extract, what's the best way to collect these rocks, um, what are the impacts of collecting them, and then how do we most efficiently turn them into metals. I appreciate that. Thanks, Joe. Some of those slides are fascinating, actually. Um, we'll, you'll, you've got a PowerPoint on your website, which we'll put a link to um, down below. Can I just um, talk about the the what next bit? And I, do, I do hope you come back on the show and maybe we'll dive a little bit deeper here because this the, the feels like a lot of work has been done on this by you and, and others um, in this field to make it more palatable to uh, investors, but um, also society in general. So um, can I ask about this, this what next component? So this sounds like a lot of CapEx required to get this infrastructure in place. It's a different type of infrastructure, but nevertheless, quite expensive infrastructure because not just out at sea, but then you've got to process it on land. So. What are your thoughts about moving that forward in the context of you staying up at night worrying about financing? <laughs> well, you know, that's where the, um, the, the, the sorry state of the offshore oil and gas services industry is an opportunity for us. The fact that, you know, we could go and build a new ship for $600 million, or we can buy an old drill ship for less than $20 million. And... The 600 million one will probably give us more efficiency. And so we think of this as a bulk commodity. And so we need to be able to collect it with most efficiency, with lowest impact. And so when capital becomes more freely available, we'll probably go and build some of those ships. But in the short term, we'll repurpose those existing assets for much lower capex. And there are some similar opportunities. I can't go into them now because they're of a confidential nature, but there are some similar opportunities on the onshore processing side as well. And so, um, which we can 
massively compress the capex requirements to be able to then process these rocks into metals. And um, yeah, that's that's we lay down the base case through a PEA, working with people like Hatch and others to say, okay, let's say we're going to build it all new and we're going to build it in the Western world and so on. And then that's what we really use to, to underpin our financings. But then as a management team, we say, okay, now that's what the base case says. Now let's rip it to bits. How would we really do it from a practical perspective? And, um, and the good thing about this company is it's, uh, you know, I, I was a lead investor in the company. You know, all of our team are, are stakeholders in it. We behave like owners. You know, we treasure every single dollar that we have and make sure it adds value. And we, we care about shareholders' equity. And, um, you know, we, we spend a lot of time and energy thinking how can we be most efficient. Okay, but you, you can't necessarily, because the sheer scale of what you're tr- attempting to do here, come at it on a first principles basis, you know, uh, Elon Musk style, where you design the perfect solution. And because everything from start to finish needs to adhere to an ethical standard, which you're setting yourselves, uh, you know, um, in terms of, you know, how you're going to be judged by investors, um, everything must you know, meet, meet, meet those kind of, um, you know, in terms of the bio, biodiversity, the ESG component, the, you know, um, you know, do good, do no evil, all of that kind of stuff. Um, but that's good. That'd be expensive to do that out of the gate unless you go and find yourself some pretty big partners with some big balance sheets. And I know Musk is a good start, but you'll need a lot more than that, won't you? Sure. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. And the good news is every time we, we, move the project through the pre-fees towards final fees, you know, it takes away those barriers for bigger companies to get involved. Every time we complete more environmental studies, it's like confidence building. And this is a long game, Matthew. You know, we, um, we're not in this for a short sprint. You know, this is a long game. And, um, and so, you know, I, I, won't say I'm an expert at financial markets, but I certainly understand how investors think. And we've been very lucky to build a, a, a team of investors who are supporting us, who think like ESG type investors, who, who see the benefit that this company can deliver to society and to sustainability, but also are attracted by the potential of the disruption you know, it's fun disrupting an industry. It's, it's, and also the economic benefits that will follow that, you know. And when I, when I um, stepped into the role of chair and CEO, you know, my goal was to build the most respected metals company on the planet. Simple as that. Because all the other things will come with it. If we, you know, it's a position vacant at the moment, I would say. <laughs> but, um, you know, from our perspective, if we can do that, then value will just flow with it. And, um, you know, I, I think that's the path we're going on. Okay, exciting times. I look forward to seeing how you guys get on. But um, it's, it's a pretty interesting story. And I say, very differentiated from what's going on there. Um, we look forward to uh, hearing from you soon. Do pick up the phone. We'd be delighted to take that phone call. And Anthony, thank you very much for um, coming and joining us. I know it's getting late there in Australia. Yeah. Thank you, Matthew. Thanks, Matthew. It's always a pleasure. Thank you for listening. If you've enjoyed the interview, why not subscribe to CruxCast or our website, cruxinvestor.com, and of course, our YouTube channel, Crux Investor. Plus, you can catch us most days on Twitter and LinkedIn. We really love getting your feedback, so please keep it coming, and we'll speak to you again soon.